Welcome to the Awakening Church Podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to awakeningchurch.com. Last week, we kicked off a brand new series called Bless Up. We're spending four weeks in the Beatitudes. It's the introduction of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, What's exciting to me is we'll spend, starting the new year, the next six months in the rest of the sermon, and we'll do different series throughout it, and we're going to really engage deeply as a church in the teachings of Jesus, and in the new year, we'll actually be reading through all four Gospels through those six months, and I'm really excited to see what's going to happen for us as a church where we go, we want to do more than just have nice ideas about Jesus. We want to know Jesus. Like, we want to know him and follow him. There was a blessing in the ancient day for a new pupil um, who would go follow after a rabbi. And the blessing was, may you be covered in the dust of your master. Like, like, may you walk so closely behind your rabbi, your teacher, your master, that like dust kicks up on you, that you're just covered. And may we be that kind of church and that kind of people as we dive in to what I believe is the greatest sermon ever get, uh, given. Last week, Chris taught uh, and dove in specifically to the first two Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit and those who mourn. This morning, what I want to do is I want to step back for a moment before we dive in more deeply next week and give you a broad overview of what's happening and what's going on in the Beatitudes so you can understand uh, this segment of Scripture as a whole and Jesus' heart and intent through that. Uh, In the Beatitudes, Jesus is revealing uh, who is really blessed and flourishing. In fact, that is the fundamental question he's answering throughout the sermon. Who is blessed? Now, in America, we actually have our own set of Beatitudes. I don't know if you know this or not. I've thought about it like this before. Uh, But, you know, Jesus' Beatitudes, and we just read those. But we have an American Beatitudes as well. And our American Beatitudes are those things that we define those who are truly blessed, those who are flourishing, those who are happy and fully satisfied. In fact, this morning's sermon title is Fully Satisfied. Would you just turn to your neighbor real quick and say, fully satisfied. Go for it. That was weird to do, wasn't it? Yeah. And our American Beatitudes, they say, If you become this, if you attain this, you will be fully satisfied. Now listen, the American Beatitudes go something like this. Blessed are the successful. Flourishing are the successful. This is the, I think, Silicon Valley uh, success is king. Blessed are the rich and powerful. Blessed are the insta-famous and those who live a lifestyle brand. Blessed are those who live picture-perfect lives, because everything is a picture now. Blessed are those who are able to do what they want whenever they want to do it. Intuitively, we gravitate towards these things. Why? 
because we believe they will fully satisfy. And in these beatitudes, American beatitudes, we subtly begin to believe that this is what it means to flourish. And so if you don't have this, you're not quite flourishing. Now, I want us to think a little bit more deeply on this for a second, because this is the undercurrent of our culture. It's the presuppositions for the way we go about life. And I just want to ask a few questions to cause us to think more deeply about what we're doing and what we're running after. If this is the blessed life, after all, if this truly is flourishing, one should expect then that when you attain these, you would be fully satisfied. If this is the blessed life, think about this. Why is it that the wealthiest country in the world has the highest use of antidepressants in the world? Now, I don't want to say that antidepressants are bad, and some people and even family members of mine are using them and need them, and that's not a bad thing. But what I am saying is, is we elevate this flourishing in the wealthiest country, and yet we are medicating ourselves more and more. Isn't it true? If this is the blessed life, why do rich, beautiful, famous people commit suicide? If indeed they are flourishing, why is suicide on the rise in America not in decline? Why is it that, quote, prosperity, success, often brings more anxiety than peace? Why is it that the person who gets more stuff, has more in the bank, isn't filled with peace, but more anxious about what they have? Is that really the blessed life? And if this is the blessed life, why is it that the more we get, the less we are truly satisfied or content? You ever notice that? That, that when, when those American Beatitudes become our definition of flourishing, see, there's nothing necessarily wrong with any of those things. It's just that they become our definition for what blessed means, our definition for flourishing, our definition for what will truly satisfy. And when they become that, why is it when we get more, we're less satisfied? It, 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 it in fact, does something quite the reverse. Um, so last night, and this is true confession, okay? My wife didn't even know about it. She was sitting in the first service, and I was sharing this. I'm like, oh, crap, this is the first time she heard this. But she was gone, uh, picking up my daughter uh, from some event. And so it was just me and the boys. And she, earlier that week, had bought JoJo's from Trader Joe's. Those are the Trader Joe's versions of Oreos, which are amazing. And I can't keep any sweets in the house because I eat them all. Like, uh, at nighttime, I'm a voracious snacker. I love to snack. And if anything unhealthy is in our pantry, I will eat it. Well, I had to somehow figure out a way to eat these JoJo's and not feel bad about them. So I said, hey, boys. Come here. I gave them two JoJo's, two for Miles, two for Ryder, two for me. I ate it. I'm like, that's delicious. But it didn't quite satisfy. It just left me wanting more. And so then I said, hey, boys, come here. (laughs) Three different times we raided the JoJo box and, and kept going after it. And here's what I find. 
This is what happens to us. We get this sweet taste, and we're like, oh, that's it. But it doesn't quite fill the craving. It's a sugar rush. And for some, you're caught in sugar rush Christianity, living from experience to experience. And this is this sugar rush of somehow like, I want this, I get this, but it leaves me wanting, and it never truly satisfies. Could it be? That what the world blesses up, what the world holds as flourishing, is actually pulling us away from the flourishing life. Could it be that our American beatitudes are actually undermining our flourishing? Here's what you know to be true, I know to be true. You may never put words to it like this, but whatever you bless up, next slide, becomes what you pursue after. Whatever you believe will cause flourishing, will bring about happiness, is, you believe is this is what the blessed life is, ultimately becomes what you pursue after, what you run after, what you hunger and thirst for. Said another way, whatever you bless up becomes the operating system from which your entire life is run, whether you know it or not. And so it becomes this, this form that your life is, is being molded and shaped by. And so perhaps one of the more, if not the most important question that you can ask in life is who is truly blessed? Because it determines your trajectory and the quality of your life. And you're already answering this, by the way. You're answering, what does true flourishing look like? You have a definition, and you're running after it. That college degree, that girl, that guy, uh, trying to get a house, trying to get the right job, the education, all those sort of things have to do with your framework of who is truly blessed and how do I get it? How does one experience the fully satisfied life? And here's what's at stake. What's at stake if we don't answer this question well? It is to climb the ladder of success, climb the ladder of what your definition of flourishing is, only to realize at the end of your life it was leaning against the wrong wall. And I've counseled and I've sat with counselless people who look back on their life and said, I chased after the ladder of success in business and I climbed it and I climbed it and I climbed it and I got to the top. In fact, I got to the top faster than anybody else. I was the youngest exec and I found it hollow and I found it empty and I found it wanting. So how do you live this flourishing life or who is truly blessed? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus flips the paradigm upside down, and he answers that question, not just in the Beatitudes, but the entire sermon is the answer to who is truly blessed and how do you live out this flourishing life. And so let me give you some broad strokes of what the Beatitudes are so that we can understand what Jesus is doing in his introduction to his sermon. First, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is reframing the blessed life to God's design for human flourishing. He's completely reframing what it means to be blessed. 
We start, and the same was true in the ancient day, with a definition of flourishing, of blessing, of happiness. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's a complete paradigm shift. I want to reframe the, the whole conversation, not the way you define human flourishing, not the way the world defines human flourishing, to God's design for human flourishing. Wouldn't it make sense, friends, that since you are created in the image of God, and that you are made by an all-good, all-knowing, all-wise, loving God, that he would actually know what flourishing is for you. He would actually understand better than you could ever understand what it means to be blessed. And so his framework is a framework in which we experience true and lasting flourishing. In fact, Jesus declares today, and this is so revolutionary, that no matter your circumstances, you can be blessed. He declares that it doesn't matter about your past, you can step into flourishing. Your socioeconomic status, you can step into flourishing. But, and it's one big but, because he's reframing this. The blessed, flourishing life of Jesus is counter-cultural to our American Beatitudes. It's not like it's just add a little Jesus to success. Add a little Jesus to Insta-famous. <laughs> well, I'll do it, you know, to praise you. There's nothing wrong with that. But he says that's not going to make you blessed. See, it's countercultural and it's counterintuitive, isn't it? We go, no, 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 to be blessed, I need to attain, I need to get this, I need to have this, I need to look this way, I need you know, have X amount of likes on whatever I just posted. I need to, I need to. And it's completely counterintuitive. And so, here's the big but. To enter into the blessed life, this is so important, it doesn't, uh, you cannot make minor tweaks. And this is what we try to do. And for some, this is why the Christian life has not worked. Because what you've wanted is your life with a little bit of Jesus. I want to go after this. I want to marry him or I want to marry her. I want to do this. I want to have this. And then it would, Jesus sounds like a great idea. I mean, he's a great teacher. I, I want a spiritual friend, a good buddy. I want, I want to have this comfort to be able to pray. That sounds like a good idea. I want to add a little bit of Jesus to my life. And it will not work. This is why Jesus, Matthew chapter 4, right before the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, and he says this over and over throughout uh, the Gospels. He says this, repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is has come near. Repent. The domain upon which God's kingdom and his reign and rule, is, it's, it's at hand. Flourishing is at hand. God's way of life is near. Now, we don't get this idea of repentance too much in our day and age. And often I think it maybe have been hijacked by some religious groups and we think of repenting as just feeling guilty or bad, and that's not what biblical repentance means at all. To repent, the word literally means to change your mind, and so change 
your direction. Like you can think about this of like, uh, I changed my mind that I'm going the wrong direction. And so I realize I'm going in the wrong direction. So I'm turning around and going the right direction. That's what repentance is. That's biblical repentance. What biblical repentance is, is to recognize and be aware that the destination or the definition of flourishing that I have actually will lead to destruction and not flourishing. I recognize, realize that, and so I'm going to turn and change my behaviors in light of what I know to be true. It's driving on the highway. And any of you, I don't know if this has happened to you. This happens to me more often than I care to admit. Driving on the highway and you realize you're going the wrong way. You ever had that? This happens to me. I'm on the phone. I'm talking to somebody. I get so into the conversation. I forget where I'm driving. I'm driving on autopilot. Some of you are in life on autopilot right now. Hello. And and you're like, look up, and all of a sudden you're lost, and you say, hello, I don't know where I'm going. I'm, oh, I'm going the wrong direction. And so what I do, I click onto my phone. I say, phone, Siri, take me home. And then it shows me to get off on the nearest off-ramp and cross the overpass and then get on the on-ramp. And so, making progress in life, listen, don't miss this, making progress in life means turning around and going back another direction. It doesn't mean, oh, I realize I'm going the wrong direction, and so I'm just going to keep going this direction and pray that God will somehow make me get to the right destination. Some of you are doing that in life. And you cry out spiritually, God, take me home. God, take me home, and he'll show you the off-ramp and the turnaround. See, repentance is a prerequisite for flourishing in life. You have to recognize and realize my definition of flourishing isn't God's, and it's actually destructive and not helpful. I'm going to embrace God's definition for the blessed life, and as a result, that's going to turn my direction that I'm heading Dallas Willard says it this way. He says, this is a call, speaking of the Beatitudes, for us to reconsider how we have been approaching life. What a great way to say it. In light of the fact that we now, in the presence of Jesus, have the option of living within the surrounding movements of God's eternal purposes. Wow. Of taking our life into his. See, repentance is just simply to reconsider your approach to life in light of the invitation of Jesus. Would would you reconsider your approach to life? Would you reconsider what you bless up? Have you considered what you bless up? Maybe it's that operating system. You don't even notice it, but it's just how you're going about life that you'd, you'd finally for the first time realize, oh, I've been putting the full weight of my life on finding the right person to ultimately satisfy, and that would be the blessed life. And because I'm single, because I don't have someone, I can't ever be fully satisfied. Wrong. The blessed life is available to you. Oh, I've been putting my full weight of being fully satisfied and blessed on having the right career and the right job. And until I get that perfect career, I will never be fully satisfied. Wrong. The blessed life is fully available to you, but you have to reconsider what you bless up and then begin to go, okay, God, I want your design for flourishing. Now, let me tell you why you should reconsider your approach to life. In the Beatitudes, Jesus not only reframes the blessed life, he flings open the gates of the kingdom. This is radical stuff. 
This is unheard of stuff. We get, uh, we've heard this so often that this becomes commonplace, but this was, this was unusual and unheard of in his world. Like I said earlier, the Beatitudes are Jesus' introduction to his greatest sermon. An introduction should, like, engage you. It should, like, oh, man, wow, I, I've never thought of it that way. It, it, it should cause you to ask the question, well, I want to know more. Uh, I'm, have piques your curiosity. It should cause you to lean in and go, well, well tell me more about that. And Jesus' sermon does just that. At the end of Matthew chapter 4, we get uh, more in-depth on the audience that Jesus is teaching to. Now, it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, And Jesus, uh, you know, went up on the mountainside, sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach. But the, we know by the end of the sermon, there's tons of crowds all around him. Well, who are the crowds? The crowds in the gospel are all the wrong people, all the unblessed people, all the not flourishing people. The crowds, I mean, just read the list, and if you do a careful study, you'll notice the crowds are from the wrong areas. They, they are from the wrong towns and the wrong cities. The crowds are made up of all the wrong type of people. The crowds are made up of sick and diseased and broken and the mentally disill and this demon-possessed. I mean, like, there is just this... From the world's standard in that day, they would say, this is the unblessable. Not just the unblessed. And then Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm flinging wide the gates of the kingdom. In the ancient Near East, only a select few were considered blessed. Women in that day were not among the blessed. Slaves were not among the blessed. Sinners certainly were not among the blessed. Think about this. If you were married and you had no kids, you were not among the blessed. If you were a Gentile, you were among the curse. If you were a Samaritan, you were considered a dog. If you worked for the Roman Empire as a Jew, you were considered a traitor, and only the wealthy religious elite were among the blessed. The select few in a world of have-nots had it. And Jesus' opening words say, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The spiritual poverty, this idea that I am utterly helpless and so I need the help of God. That's all you need to enter the blessing of God. That's it. And the commentaries let us know, uh, they connect Isaiah 61, it's the messianic work of Jesus, to the Beatitudes. Uh, and in this, Jesus actually, in Luke chapter 4, reads this in the synagogue, and then he sits down and he says, Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Like, I am the fulfillment of what you're reading as the prophecy of the long-awaited Messiah. That was the hope of Christmas time, the hope of a Savior coming to bring salvation to the Jewish people, and he flings wide the gates to every person on the planet. Notice Isaiah 61, verse 1. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Why? Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news. Who is he going to proclaim this good news to? To the religious elite? To the, those who go, I'm blessed, I'm flourishing, I got it all together? No, to the poor. To the disenfranchised. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Isn't that beautiful? You walked in this morning, you're brokenhearted. He says, the good news is for you. 
to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Have you been in prison to addiction? Have you been in prison to your own stuff? And he says, I've come to proclaim good news. What is this? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is where Jesus would close the scroll and say, and today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. But let me just continue on because the Jewish people knew how it finished. And the day of vengeance of our God, why? To comfort all who mourn. You came in and you need to comfort. He says, I want to comfort you. To provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Isn't that beautiful? The oil of joy instead of mourning. A garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Notice this. That group, the unblessables, they will be called oaks of righteousness a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. This, friends, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news. Not that we are better than we think, but that we are loved as we are and invited in. Let me say that again because you missed it. Jesus has this profound way. Read the gospels. Of touching to the true state of humanity and yet responding fully with grace. He, he doesn't just say, no, you're fine. He doesn't just say, no, you're good. Now, don't worry about it. He says, no, 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 you're broken. But I'll make you beautiful. You're sinful. But I'll wash you clean. See, the gospel gospel, friends, is that even me, a broken, sinful, messed up, screwed up guy, can step into flourishing because of what Jesus has done on the cross. We tend to elevate whoever's on stage. We're all human. We're all broken. We all have our stuff. And imagine if we stop playing church and putting on fake plastic grins and we're just going, no, no, no. I am saved by Jesus. And yes, I am broken. And there's things in my life he's still redeeming. But wow, am I accepted. Wow, am I loved. And the gospel has brought me home. The flourishing life is available even to me. And even to you. I love how Tim Keller writes it. The gospel is this. Think, think about this. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. That doesn't sound like good news. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Wow. Jesus, fling wide the gates of the kingdom, and it doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, every single one of us stands on level ground at the cross. And all who call upon him will be saved. So the question is, how do you experience the flourishing life Jesus is inviting us into? So Jesus is reframing blessing. 
to align up with God's design for human flourishing in the Beatitudes. He's flinging wide the gates of the kingdom. Okay, how do I walk in? How do I go through the door? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. In the Beatitudes, Jesus gives us both the entry point and the explanation of the flourishing life. It's both. He gives us the process by which I step into this blessed or flourishing life, and the Beatitudes reveal or explain what a flourishing life really looks like because we miss it all the time. The Beatitudes, Jesus tells us, how do I enter the blessed life, and what does true flourishing really look like? Now, I got this chart in your uh, notes And I wanted you to really be able to understand the whole of the Beatitudes this week. And next week, we'll dive back into the specifics of it. And first, what I want you to notice is the inclusio of the Beatitudes. Now, no, that isn't a typo. Some of you are like, he meant to say inclusion, and he missed it this week. Ryan's spell check wasn't working. No, I didn't. This means inclusio. Let me tell you what it is. What you'll see is in the, the first beatitude, you'll see the poor in spirit, and it'll say, theirs is the, help me out, kingdom. kingdom. Very good. If you go all the way down to the last beatitude, it says, blessed are the pers- those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. What Jesus is doing is he's employing a literary teaching device known as an inclusio. An inclusio is a bookend or a bracket where you repeat at the beginning, at the end, and what it signifies is that everything in the middle belongs as one whole. See, our temptation with the Beatitudes, and the reason we needed to zoom out, is our temptation is to take them as individual statements, and they're just all on their own. Blessed is that kind of person or blessed is that kind of person. And Jesus is painting one beautiful picture of blessedness or flourishness. Okay? And so what we're going to see is this first, the next steps or the entry point in, into the blessed life, that which is the gospel. And the gospel then moves us to a transformed life. See, Jesus meets you where you are at, but he will never leave you where you are at. He is going to make you more and more and make me more and more like his son. Well, what is the next steps or the entry point? It's the gospel. And the gospel, the way we respond to the gospel, the good news that Jesus came for us, that he died for us, that he rose again to new life for us, and that in him we can step into the flourishing life for those who call on his name. What is that? How do we do that? We have to first be porn spirit. Chris did an excellent job on this last week. Go back and listen to it. You first have to recognize your spiritual bankruptcy, friends, that I have nothing, that I am utterly helpless. See, the only people who cry out for saving are those who can't save themselves. Somebody's drowning, If they still think they can save themselves, they are not crying out. They just believe they're sinking. We have to recognize this is the entry point into the blessed life, is a spiritual bankruptcy to realize and recognize that, okay, I am broken. I am in need. God, would you save me? That's why he then goes on poor in spirit to those who mourn. And we often think about this as like mourn of a loss or of a circumstances, but he's talking about mourning sin. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, Godly sorrow 
leads to repentance, which brings salvation and no regrets, whereas worldly sorrow leads to death. What's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? Let me tell you. Worldly sorrow is this. I'm sorry I got caught, and I'm sad that I experienced the consequences. That's worldly sorrow. I'm sorry I got caught, and I'm really sad that I'm experiencing the consequences of this. And underneath that is if I didn't get caught, and if there were no consequences, I would do it the same. Godly sorrow sees sin and the relationship with God and says, oh, my God. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. You see what sin does, and you just grieve your heart. And, and you just go, no, no, I just want to be in such a right relationship with you. I want a relationship with you. And I see the devastation and the destruction, and like a cancer, it just brings about death in me. And I want to root out the cancer. That's godly sorrow. It says this is the process by which we enter into the blessed life. You recognize you're, you're spiritually bankrupt. You then begin to mourn or grieve, and then you move. Meekness is not weakness, by the way. Meekness literally means to be humble, to be gentle, to recognize one's true state in light of who God is. And so as a result, we will respond to others in a, in a kind and humble and gentle way because we don't have a haughtiness in ourselves. And when you're meek before God, it's what James uh, said. He said, humble yourselves under God and he will lift you up. Like, like you just go, I'm going to humble myself, God. If you could, if you would, I need you. And then he says, when you respond in humility to him, he gives you a brand new heart. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Well, so I want you to notice the gospel. We respond and then you'll see the process, the transformed life. This is what he wants to produce in you. So here's what I want you to notice. I wrote on the right side of the middle side, internal and then external. You notice that the first four of the Beatitudes is internal, what God's doing and what's happening inside of us. The last four have to do with the external. On an internal, just write root, R-O-O-T, root. And then external, write fruit. I won't spell that out. I think you can do that one. Fruit. What you'll notice is the first four have to do with the internal world and your life before God. The next four have to do with your transformed life before others. Now, here's what happens. We know, oh man, I want to be a good person. So what do you try to do? You try to be a good person. Maybe you have an anger issue. I'm going to stop being angry. Maybe you have a lust issue. I'm going to stop lusting. Maybe you're like merciful. Okay, I want to be merciful. I want to be more merciful. A pure in heart has to do with your blameless way of life uh, with others. Peacemaker. I want to be a peacemaker. And so we work on that. That is the fruit, not the root. The spiritual life says go back to the root. Transformation in Christ isn't about behavior modification. It's about allowing the Spirit of God to do the work inside of you. And then he will transform your responses. See, what we do is we focus all on the fruit. And you're going like, no, no, those are just indicators of what's going on inside. You go back up and you go, I got to go back through the process again. This isn't some like steps. I'm going to take this up. This is, this is something that we maintain in our life. This is powerful for relationships and marriages, by the way. This last week I got into um, an argument with my wife. And it was all my fault, by the way. Yeah, I mean, it was one that we, we, really, we really argued. 
I don't know what you think about a pastor's argument. It's like, oh, you hurt me. No, it was, it was a real argument. <laughs> and real feelings were hurt. And for a couple days, I, mean, I hate to say this, I dug my heels in because I wanted my rights to be met. And then I'm trying to preach this. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the, I'm like, come on, God. <laughs> and you know what he said? He said, Ingram, go back to the root. Go back to the root. It is incredibly powerful in a relationship when you recognize, okay, I am spiritually bankrupt and utterly helpless to affect any change in this relationship. God, I need you. And so I'm going to mourn and grieve over the sin that I've brought into this relationship. And here's what we do in relationships. We mourn and grieve over the sin they brought into the relationship and talk all about what they did wrong, right? And a meek, humble response is, I'm going to lower myself down so that the other person can be lifted high. I don't want to do that. Well, because Christ is my Savior, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to hunger and thirst after his righteousness, not my rights. It will transform your relationships. I wanted you to see that this is the process of transformation throughout the Bible. 2 Peter 1, um, 3 and 5 says, His divine power, whose power is it? His power has given you everything you need for a godly life. Think about that. You're not lacking anything right now in your spiritual walk. Nothing. And then it says this, make every effort. It's His power at work, and we make every effort. Uh, uh, Dallas Willard said it this way, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. We don't do this that we earn more. Listen to how Galatians 2.20 says, you have been saved by grace, and this is not a work of yourself, it is a gift of God, so that no person may boast. And then the next uh, verse it says this, you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance to do. Like, Completely a work of God, regeneration, saved, brought into the family of God. And then he says, make every effort, make every effort to live and walk in this way, in his power, going back to the root. Romans 12.1 says it this way, in view of God's mercy. And by the way, if you want to study the book of Romans, chapter 1 through 11 expounds God's mercy in the most beautiful way, the gospel. All 11 chapters are all about his mercy. And he says, in view of God's mercy and what he's done for you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I thought maybe one picture that might help us unpack this. Galatians 5.22 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit And then it gives the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I miss one. I know I miss one. And here's what our tendency to do. Our tendency is to focus on love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self, all those. I won't try. I'm, you know. (laughs) Go look it up. Now notice this. uh, The Apostle Paul said the fruit singular. And all those are part of the fruit. Who creates the fruit? So you don't have fruits like you have, okay, I have love as a fruit. I have joy as a fruit. I have this. No, no, no. The fruit, the fruitful life, the blessed life of what? Help me out. Of the Spirit. The Spirit of God working on you, and when you yield your life to the Spirit of God, will produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And there's one I just, uh, 
Patience, faithfulness. Thank you. I know it. I, I knew I was missing one. The same is true with, there's, it's really better to say the beatitude. The beatitude expressed. And our poverty of spirit is the key that unlocks the door. And so, how do you, how do I experience this blessed life? Let me just land the plane right here. And I'll go to blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. They will be fully satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger. Not for JoJo's. Not not the American Beatitudes, but for righteousness. Well, what is righteousness? First, righteousness is who God is. He is righteous. It is a defining characteristic of God. He is holy. He is pure. And then righteousness is God's will and his ways. It's to be in right standing with God. It's to desire to do life God's way. It's saying righteousness is not my will, but your will be done. Not my ways, but your ways. God, you are righteous, and so your ways are right. Now notice this. Um, Let me give you a little quick Greek lesson. Greek is a case language, and so uh, there's different cases for the verbs. And so uh, hunger and thirst is normally in the accusative case, which means uh, in the Greek here, we'd always put this like, I hunger and I thirst for bread, or I hunger for bread. In the accusative, it literally means I want a piece of bread. Uh, Here, Jesus has it in the genitive. And, And what that means is instead, I want a piece of bread, I want the whole loaf. Here's what he's saying. Blessed are those who say, I want all of you, God. I don't want a piece of you, and I don't want you to have a piece of me and somehow get a piece. I want you. I want your righteousness and your ways and all that you have. I want all of it. Let me just leave you with maybe a visual that will help you. Because whatever you bless out becomes what you pursue after. As we reconsider and go on, okay, I, I'm going to reconsider what I bless up, what I'm pursuing after. But that sounds intense, Ryan. Like hungers and thirst after righteousness. If you've been around a long time, you've seen this illustration of mine, but it fits here too perfectly. So here it is again. I have these orange cones for those who can't see and Let's just imagine, if you will, right over here is like righteousness, the flourishing life with God, like intimate, deep relationship with him, the blessed life. Let's go like, well, you know, I walked in here. That's not where I'm at. That wouldn't define me. Okay. You know, the beautiful part about this text is it doesn't say blessed are those who are righteous, does it? It doesn't say blessed are those who have their lives already worked out and living in it. What does it say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Did you know God honors your desires? He says, oh, you're hungering and thirsting for me? 
Oh, you're hungering and thirsting for the flourishing life I'm offering? Oh, you want me? I'm going to meet you there. Like, I want to meet you right there. Not that you come all the way up here and have your life figured out and fixed up. He says, no, no, no. All you do is you cry out right where you're at, right here. Oh, I'm hungering and thirsting for you. And he says, I'll meet you back here. You don't have to work your way up here. I'll meet you back there. But you're like, Ryan, I'm not even there. I get that. I'm way back here. See, if I'm really honest, I got invited by a friend and I don't really do this church thing, but I've been, grew up, I kind of get this, but I want to want to hunger and thirst for Jesus. I want to want to know God. I don't even have the desire to hunger and thirst. I just have the desire to desire. And the beauty of the gospel is he meets you right there. He says, you know, no, you don't have to somehow work your way up to finally I'm in a place where, like, I'm hungry and I, I'm starving for you, God. I need you. He says, I, if you go, I want to want you, he says, I'm going to show up and I'm going to meet you right there. You just call. You're like, I'm not even there. I get it. You're all the way back here. If you're honest, man, you've gone through some difficult seasons. You're going like, I don't even know about God. I don't even know if he's real. I don't know that he wants me. And honestly, I don't even know if I want him. And if I'm really honest, maybe what I, I want to want to want to know God. Like, like, that's really kind of where I'm at right now. I'm in a, a want to want to want, uh, you know. Uh, I'm not up here by no means. Like, I, I'm hungering and thirsting to be there, but I'm not there. And I'm not even the place where I want to hunger and thirst. Like, I'm way back here where, you know what? If there is a God, maybe I want to want to hunger and thirst. And the gospel tells us, even all the way back here, you're never too far from him. And he says, I will meet you right there. Well, how do you know? Christmas. Christmas. Christmas reveals that we have a God who met us right where we are. And didn't ask us to meet him where he is. A God who met us so much in our weaknesses, in our poverty, that he became poor for our sake. Meek and mild, certainly. And he became nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, vulnerable as a baby, grew up in this life, knows exactly what it's like to suffer, knows exactly what it's like to struggle, knows exactly what it's like to be hungry and disappointed by others and betrayed, and knows exactly all those sort of things. And we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, who's gone through the heavens. Why? Because he came to earth. And the invitation for you and for me is no matter where you're at, would you just call and cry out to him and he will meet you there. Would you pray with me as we close?
some this morning. You're in a place of going, okay, I, I hunger and thirst, and I, I've kind of gotten off my way, and I need, to, I need to reorient, I need to repent, and say, Jesus, I want all of you, not part of you. And the cry of your heart in that moment, and you just call out to him and say, Jesus, this morning, I come to you, I cry out to you, you can have it all. I want all of you. Would you meet me there? For others, today's the day of salvation. You, you never knew you had a God who loves you, who, who meets you right where you're at. And all you have to do is cry out to him. You can be as honest as, God, I, I don't even really get it all, but if that preacher guy's right, that I, I'm in the area I want to want to want you, and so I'm, that's where I'm at. Would you meet me here? Jesus, would you come and meet me here? And he will meet you here.